Well, hello to another episode of the podcast and hello if you're watching on YouTube. I'm delighted to be joined by Dom Thomas today, the brains, the genius behind <laughs> Fairlight Cycles. How you doing? Hardly. <laughs> I'm good, mate. I'm good, thank you. Okay. Thanks for inviting me over. Oh, a pleasure. So the reason Dom has joined me today is to talk about a subject close to my heart and close to your heart, I know, uh, still. Yeah. And as a saying that you've probably all heard, still is real. So the idea of this episode is to get under the skin and what that actually means and talk about still, your passion for it, your experience working with it and you know, some of what you see in the future for still. Yeah. And uh, yeah, see where it goes. Cool. So Let's before we dive in, you're now working at Fairlight, but you've got a bit of experience with still going back, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I co-founded Fairlight with uh, my business partner, John. Uh, that was back in 2015 um 16 somewhere around then um and then prior to that i was hand building frames myself uh, under the name wold doing um sort of bespoke bikes and a few small production bikes um and before that i was doing genesis for three sort of model year seasons so all within the world of steel um and sort of slightly different experiences um obviously hand making but also being in factories in europe asia um all over really so getting a, a fairly broad um uh, sort of taste of the world of steel <laughs> so you clearly have a lot of expertise and experience with steel but why have you always worked with steel as you have and not dabbled with carbon and other materials available um i mean i have dabbled with other, i've done tie and aluminium um genesis but certainly steel was always the material that appealed to me um i guess it was just i was drawn to it uh the material um i suppose sounds a bit deep but the humility of it is a, is a big part of it for me the fact that you've got this sort of material with the, got such a sort of strong history engineering and industrial history easy to make um the material itself i mean um you know it comes from from the earth from from ore and how strong it is but yeah this this sort of beautiful material that you can easily craft you can weld it together with just literally fire and brass if you want to um obviously we tick we tick weld but you can braise it and yeah it's um it can be you know very good value sort of on the on the lower end it can also be extremely high end uh, you know pushing the boundaries of it but yeah such a really sort of humble honest material that is incredibly strong um incredibly comfortable you durable um but you can make it light as well it's just um yeah it sort of has that appeal i suppose in this in a the way that maybe a you know a wooden a beautiful wooden table versus a plastic table there's something that maybe sense wise you can't really put into words but it's to do with the the material and where it comes from i suppose and what it can do and what it represents it sounds like you almost have a romantic emotional attachment to material there's definitely <laughs> a romantic aspect yeah of it i would say i mean i think something i think about i think part of it is informed by you know where you grow up and and the life that you have in your sort of early years and i grew up in in lincolnshire lincolnshire wilds is a working landscape so you know every day through the village there'd be tractors or combines or land rovers cruising through um and they'd all have the sort of bolts and workings on display and that was that appealed to me that sort of uh, type of engineering and um, this sort of real, um, I suppose, tools. 
um, that they weren't in any way decorative or ornamental. They were these functional tools. And, you know, that definitely links into why I love steel. The fact that, like I say, it's this very humble material that can do amazing things, that can transport people around the world, um, that you can, you know, do everything from commuting to touring to whatever, just on this uh, relatively simple machine. Um, so, yeah, but there is definitely a, more than a, more than a pinch of uh, romance in there, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you describe it as a, a humble material. I think that's yeah. quite a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Because it's always amazed me. I ride steel bikes and I love steel bikes, but it's, it's kind of crazy we do in a way because there are better materials on paper, carbon yeah. fiber, aluminium, titanium. Yeah. But many of us still have this kind of connection to steel that's difficult to put into words sometimes and describe yeah. that the reason we still choose steel an inferior material in some ways to more advanced materials. Yeah, I mean, I I still have this. I think that if you were a, if you were an alien race looking down onto Earth and you came here thinking, right, um, we need to make this thing called a bicycle. What material do do we make it from? And you know, it's it's not for racing. It's for the practical purpose of having a something an object you can use every day, whether it's recreational, commuting, whatever. You know, what do we make it from? I think steel is still as far as I'm concerned, stands up there because, like I say, it is um, easy to form. Um, you, it's relatively, well, it's, it's, it's recyclable. Um, in fact, 631 and 853 that we use predominantly on our frames, the higher-end steels, that's, six, and this is not very well known, but 631 and 853 are, are entirely made from recycled steels now. Really? I didn't yeah, know they're entirely recycled. Wow. So um, the foundry that makes them recycled sources and then it's all butted and formed it in the uk um and you know, keith reynolds was telling me it's i think it's i might misquote this 30 percent um cheaper um and also in terms of the energy that's consumed to make the materials from recycled sources versus smelting from fresh ore um so yeah then at the end of its life whenever that be you know i think 85 percent of steel around the world whether it's a you know, a car, whatever it is, is recycled now. So it's, just, you know, it will go back and be used for something else. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, if you, if you add in sort of cost, you know, reliability, recyclability, um, the practicality of it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great material for making the sort of bikes that we like to make, which is these sort of bikes that you, you know, live with that fit into your lives. Real bikes, not the Sunday full-on race bike, but actually the bikes that, you know, um, people ride and get this feeling from, and that sort of opens up this world for them. Okay, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned uh, like different between like racing and, and normal riding and yeah. utility. I know when you're at Genesis Bikes, yeah, probably going about ten years now. You were involved in a project to put steel bikes back in the pro peloton with a yeah. team at a time. Can yeah. you elaborate on what that experience was like in terms of trying to develop a steel frame that's meeting the requirements? of the pro riders who were used to carbon at a time yeah, and, yeah. and how much that pushed you as an engineer and designer and push material? Did you find its limits or go beyond or? Um, I mean, it was an interesting project for sure. Um, that project really started, two, it was 2012, I think, but um, I was wanting to do a 953 road frame and um, I was pitching the, the model year's bikes for the following year to the, to the directors at Madison who own Genesis. And they'd always had this idea that actually they'd love to do their own race team. Um, so this idea started up, well, actually, why don't we do something a bit different? Let's take this 953 frame 
and um, let's make a, a race-worthy product from it. And then I went to speak to Reynolds and we all got excited about it in terms of what, what can we do with the material and what shaping can we do with it, how, how thin can we go on the wall thicknesses, but we still need to pass ISO testing it. And then chatting to the vendors, uh, the factory that we used and getting them involved. And yeah, so it was quite an exciting project in terms of um, trying to make, you know, a light, stiff race uh, worthy. Um, and it won some races product um, to sort of shake things up really and to have this fresh perspective. Because, you know, the UCI do have weight limits and you can get there with a, with a, with a steel bike. Um, and of course, yeah, there was rider feedback involved. There's quite, I think it was 12 riders to begin with and some well-established racers, Ian Bibby, Dean Downing back then and some young guns, Alex Peters. And they all had their sort of requests. Some were easier than others. Some were literally, I'll ride anything. And you could, there were, but there were others that were really specific about, um, and also interesting, they were very, they wanted to be, learn about the process and, and they wanted to understand what was going to be different about it. Um, so yeah, did we did we reach the limits? We were probably close in terms of certainly in terms of wall thicknesses. You know, I think you can only go to a certain point with that before um, the the tubes become too easy to dent, no matter how strong they are. Um, and you know, material strength sets that limit. Um, I suppose there's other technologies now that maybe could affect the way the tubes are joined at the very far end, maybe there wouldn't be practical solutions, but there may be solutions um, using sort of lattice structures um, to save a little bit of extra weight. Um, but yeah, we got pretty close with the technologies that were available at the time. Uh, and it was a great, it was a great project. You know, I, I certainly learned a lot from it um, and definitely the learnings from that feed into the work in particular on the Strail and the Sakan. Um, in terms of trying to make a, a race-worthy product, albeit slightly more um, functional aspect to the, to the bikes that we make in terms of the all-season riding. But the actual um, bones of it is very similar, yeah. yeah. I actually bumped into Ian Bibby about a year ago. Oh, asking right. about, is he still racing? Uh, no, he's working for a, a bicycle company distributor. Still riding, yeah. though. Still fit. Um, yeah. But yeah, I asked him about the, the bikes, and he said the first one he rode was too stiff. Too st- yeah. Which you wouldn't, yeah. not, still has a reputation of being springy, shall we yeah. say. Um, you wouldn't think excess stiffness would be a, a problem. So you had to kind of dial back the stiffness, I guess, in those early frames. And- there was, yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting saying that now, thinking back, the, the, the very first run we did, the samples, um, I don't remember him specifically, but he made a few of the riders saying it was too stiff. As in my mind, you know, I think the, the other road bike we did back then was the Equilibrium, which wasn't a race bike. Um, and so we, what you're thinking is weight and stiffness. How do we get maximum stiffness? You know, we used an 86 mil BB shell, great big chain stays, 24 mil, um, and then overlizing the tubes and everything. And, you know, the very base of having an incredibly strong material anyway that is very stiff in itself. And yeah, it, it probably, um, I think those early prototypes for some of the riders was a, a bit harsh and some of the later generations, we um, reduced the, you know, tube diameters to make it a little bit more um, flexible um, to, you know, um, so yeah, it, it was a learning process. Um, and of course those riders are all different in terms of, I'm sure they'll go on to a, some of them might ride a track now and it might not be right for them. But yeah, it was, uh, like I say, 
it's all about knowledge and learning and certainly I learned a lot then um in terms of what makes a great a great bike um yeah I remember it quite because I mean the first time I still bike been using a pro peloton for 20 yeah. odd years and yeah, like I said yeah, won no, a few races yeah. and although there's no lasting legacy now of steel bikes and a peloton sadly I think for a lot of people it changed that attitude to still and the people who maybe don't race but still want a fast responsive bike it yeah. may, may put still back in their sort of um, short list of options when looking at carbon bikes and all the usual choices and we've seen some quite interesting developments in tube set diameters and shaping and stuff and i know you say this that project informed where you are now so yeah. talk about how you went from working at genesis back in 2012 yeah to where we are now a Fairlight, and some of the some of the big changes you've seen and you've been involved with in terms of you know, the shape of tubes and yeah. what's available to you as a designer and engineer? Um, I mean, I would say um, it's interesting you look back and the way you think now and maybe the way you thought then it's you, and you look back and actually the whole, every year you're learning something new. But I would say the biggest step for me, uh, I mean, certainly doing the Valari thing was an eye-opener in terms of right, what could we do with the tubing and having the conversations with Reynolds about shaping that perhaps previous to that project I wouldn't have had. Um, you know, looking after a very large range of bikes, there was only so much you could do with each product each season. Um, so that was quite a meaty project in terms of learning new techniques and um, the limits of the material. But yeah, I mean, I decided um, to, to leave Genesis and, and build frames. I really wanted to learn more um, about the nitty gritty. I just felt this strong desire to actually learn about the fabrication myself so I spent a year doing um, welding and fabrication and brazing classes while I was doing Genesis in the evenings in London at a college and obviously I had the design skills already although you're always learning um, and I just yeah really wanted to go away and, and to actually learn more about the process and I built those frames myself I had a fully kit out workshop every jig you could imagine milling machine lathe all the rest of it surface table and, you know, it was a hard hand-to-mouth existence for those years, but it was amazing just learning. And actually the best bit about it was the, uh, looking back, was creating the processes, understanding the processes and the limits. And and uh, actually once you'd learned, not the basics, but once you'd learned a lot of those techniques, it became quite monotonous, the work, and I didn't like that so much. But when I think about design now, um, and when I'm designing a product, I'm literally thinking in my head of how I'm putting that frame together, if it was me. And it informs every decision you make in terms of, it's different, it's, it's looking at a, an item as a object that you sort of know how it goes together and looking at an object when you exactly know how it goes together, it completely changes the way you think about a, a product. And I'd say to anyone, if anyone was interested in getting into um, design, not just of a bike, learn how to make to make it it just it's it's the it's the best thing in terms of getting your mind working um so yeah so i i took that knowledge from from manufacturing and the discussions i'd had with reynolds during that time and actually during the time doing wold as well they were they were helping me do stuff um and yeah that's they've both informed where we're at now so actually the way i look at a project now is every tube i know there isn't a i i understand some product managers would be looking at so when this is our we've got this option we've got this option we've got this option it's in a price list this is what's available from columbus or reynolds i'll look at it and go well okay 
I see what they've got here, but I'd like to do this. It's a variation of it. I'd like to do this sort of shaping. And I'll go and have that conversation with Reynolds and we'll talk about it and often we'll meet somewhere in the middle. But it's almost that mindset that you learn of actually there's no harm asking and checking. I suppose in some respects, there might be a fear of a fear of failure in terms of the product. If you're changing things about the product that hasn't tested, the worst thing that could happen for you as a small brand would be to have a product that had a, a weakness or a failure because that particular shape hadn't been used before if you're using a very skinny seat stair or something. Um, so you're always taking with a pinch of salt how far you push it. But yeah, certainly now it's this sort of mindset of, right, what's the best shape for each tube? What's the best butting for each tube? And we'll literally go down to, you know, adding 10 mil to a butt length and creating tools to do it just to try and make, um, to try and get through ISO to make the, the frame as, as light as it can be or to have the right ride characteristics. So really focusing on the nitty gritty. Um, and like I say, almost that visualization that actually you're making the product yourself. Um, it's It just guides everything. Yeah. So it's about understanding the limitations of the material as much as understanding how it goes together. Because I think people talk about how steel limits your options. I mean, carbon is blank canvas. You can have any shape you want and you can do yeah. this and that and a wonderful material. Yeah. But steel seems to have a set of limits which you can't. And it seems like what you're working on now is yeah. trying to push every part of the frame as far as possible. You're really trying to extract as much performance with more lightness or yeah, exactly. less weight. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is um, limitations and a lot of those limitations um, or the, the limit, the line, if you like, is, is the ISO test for us. So we ISO test our products and you could debate whether the ISO test is, you know, is actually um, beyond what a real bike would go through. But it is peace of mind. We should probably insert now a quick explainer of what the ISO test is. Oh, yeah, so an ISO test, ISO. Um, ISO te is, um, what used to be called EN testing. It's uh, effectively, um, you put your the, each frame and fork um, through a series of tests. So horizontal loading, vertical loading, impact tests. So, you know, it'll be putting a jig and it will go through like the horizontal test. It's, it's being twisted 10,000 cycles and trying to put in, I don't know, however equivalent years of riding that is. Uh, and then it'll have to do you know, a vertical test, then they'll crash it in into it, and I'll drop it from a height, which is the impact test. And so you have all these different tests to get through to certify that the frame is safe. Um, and, you know, we're a direct consumer brand. We sell all over the world. We sell quite a lot into the US now. And um, it's quite important, particularly for that market that we're covered. And with a sort of litigation okay, and all yeah. the rest of it, that we, that we have a, a good and strong and safe product. Both for ourselves, you know, we're, um, myself and John, you know, we don't ever end up in prison for corporate <laughs> So you want to make a safe product. Uh, I'm not saying that bikes that aren't tested aren't safe, but it just gives it that approval that actually it has met. So that, I suppose, is, is your line. That That's you like your limits, isn't is, it? Is your limits. And, you know, I've designed a lot of different bikes now over the years and put them through testing a lot of frames um have for example the new strail failed a couple of times and we had to change um you the frame would look identical to your eyes it was the the length of the butt inside the tubes um to try and get it to go through the test and it went through the test so it's these small differences so now i'd look at a test and i can almost tell you how long a butt needs to be for a certain test a road iso test is different to a to a mountain one Right, the butt needs to be this long. If it's eight five three, the wall thickness needs to be 
you know, 0.7 or 0.8, depending what test it is. Um, if it's not that, we're going to struggle, or we could go with a with a you know a thinner wall but make the butt longer. So I, I've already got a very clear sense of where my starting point is, um, and then I'll try and usually err on the lighter side. I'll try and get close to it. And like I said, it may take one or two tests to get through it. We'll always get through it, but you know we're trying to hover around that line um, to try and push the limits and also Keith and Dave and the guys at Reynolds are very you know they they have a lot of customers and they have a good sense themselves of those lines as well so between us we can talk about it and they know what we're trying to achieve and they'll help me get there in terms of um you know tooling or whatever to make the butts longer or to create a bigger diameter tube or with the same butts or something so um why Designing a steel bag is not rocket science. It really isn't. Um, it's, it's quite simple, actually. But it's like with everything. It's this sort of hard-earned knowledge that I could write it all down in pages and pages and pages of it. And you go, hey, this is a guide how to make a steel frame. And you'd absorb, you'd absorb it and get it. But you still wouldn't have that, all that knowledge that's built up and the way you think about it. So it's, like I say, it's, very, it's, it's not rocket science, but you learn as you go and you, you keep pushing those... Um, uh, you keep pushing yourself, I suppose, to try and do things a little bit more. But, um, you know, we're talking <laughs> small increments, not huge, huge gains now because of where we're already at and having to pass these tests. I think some people might be surprised how much you are pushing the limits with material that a lot of people might perceive as not having changed much since the Eddie Merck days in yeah. terms of you know, tube sets available. Yeah. But it sounds like you are pushing the limits as much as a designer of a carbon frame pushes the limits in terms of weight and wall thickness and stuff so it sounds like you're at the limit how how close are limits or kind of how many more possibilities are there to you know, change a button on a tube or do you um, we at peak kind of steel frame i think we, we now we or? probably are we're probably close to where where we could go with it um there may be other things we can do with, with butting depending um what type of bike it is um but you know we're not really in the realms where we can remove 200 or 300 grams or even probably 150 grams is a struggle because you still have to get through these tests um and your material like 853 is already a very very hard material once you go harder than 853 you start working into difficulty with the forming of that material the cost goes right up because of tooling wear and all the rest of it and actually the the price of the customer is going up significantly, but they're not getting a huge benefit. They may be saving a hundred grams. And, you know, at the heart of the products we make is this idea, you know, despite the fact we're talking about the technology is I want, or we want these bikes to be, um, sort of accessible to, to people. We, we want to sell them in, in volume, not just because we're trying to make money, but because we want people to ride our bikes, we want bums on seats. We think it can improve lives and that's a big part of the job, hearing back people saying, you know, it's the best bike I've ridden, I love it, I ride it every day. That's a massive part of it. Um, you know, and price is an issue within that. You don't want to... So it's trying to get that balance of making it technologically as good as it can be, but also that's part of the challenge. How can we make it for a certain price so that it's not £3,000 because you might sell five of them versus, you know, 12.99 for our frame or, you know, 2.899 for an Altegra bike, which I think is amazing value for the work that we put into it. Um, so, yeah, we like, we want it to be an accessible product that um, isn't just a, 
statement of design. I mean, it is a statement of design, but it's also an everyday person can go out and buy it um, if, if they're in the market for it. Um, so that factors into it as well. And that's also interesting because trying to achieve the pricing in terms of that also affects how you design stuff when you're looking at materials and how you join um, the materials of braze or TIG or when we're making the dropouts, we're trying to make something beautiful. We're also trying to go back to this sort of idea when I was making frames, how do we make it? How do we make it so we can make it using the technologies that exist in these facilities? Or, we, yeah, we can create some of our own tools, but we still need to um, rely on their skills. <clears throat> so it's not just an abstract object that looks pretty. It's something we can actually make in the real world. But that still looks pretty because we, we go to the extra thing of making it look beautiful um so yeah it, it it's um <laughs> don't know where i've got to but yeah if you sort of game it's this combination of um trying to make something great but also trying to make something accessible as well you seem to be talking with attention to detail you expect from a kind of bespoke custom frame builder making a one-off frame but you're building on a on a, a reasonable scale now yeah yeah we are yeah uh, not a small company not a large company sort of mid-sized company yeah there aren't many brands offering sort of attention detail in a product at a reasonable price yeah that fair um, is. <clears throat> no i mean I, I i i would agree with that i mean there, there are others i think there's others doing doing good products but um yeah that's certainly something that we're aware of is this this sort of um and it is a mindset you know, let, let's 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 try and push this you know and i will you know take it home with me a lot of the time in my head i'll carry it around probably to the point where it's not healthy and you know, it's this obsession about this where when I'm designing a new bike and when I start getting absolutely sick of it, I usually think, well, that I'm probably, I need to call it a draw a line to it now and say that's done. But it's almost this idea that when someone's buying your product and they're paying a lot of money for it, that when they get that product, they can sort of sense that this care and thoughtfulness that you've put into it, they look at it and all this tube, like when you, you got yours, and you looked at all the tube shaping that you'd only seen in maybe a, I don't know if you'd reviewed it, but you'd seen it in a catalogue. And but the same when you see it in the flesh, you can see, God, look at all these shapes. Like they must do something. This isn't just for that they can see it's an engineered object. Um, and we get so many nice emails from us, oh, you know, the beautiful details, the frame rides great. And, you know, you feel good that you've sold a product to people that you've put so much work into that you haven't just created something and put a price and a nice colour that actually you know in your heart what they're riding is this really great product um, that um, is going to, you know, hopefully make them feel great every day. Um, so that is a part of it. You're not just doing it for you. You're doing it for the people that are buying the product. Yeah, I know personally the details in the frame are what drew me to it. And it's an interesting one because there's a lot of work goes into carbon frame. I mean, they're really complex <coughs> to make. Yeah. But with a steel frame, especially like the Fairlight, all the details are clearly visible. The yeah. shape, the crimping of the tubing, all the yeah, little yeah. details are there. You can see all the engineering, the thought that's gone onto it. It's not yeah. hidden away underneath a paint and a carbon. It's it's there on show. And I think Definitely. that appeals to people. Yeah. And you clearly tapped into a healthy kind of niche of people who want that sort of high yeah. end steel. Yeah. Reasonably priced. Often them that sort of four season riding. Yeah. And ride quality is yeah, yeah. first and foremost, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's it's just what you're saying there about, you know, the difference between carbon and, and steel and the fact that almost um there's this expectation with carbon that everything has to be seamless hidden um and that's just the way it is and that's what customers want 
And I kind of get that because I suppose the very nature of the carbon material, it's almost got this F1 type appeal. It's the, the you know, um, super light, super stiff, sleek. Um, and going back to, you know, when I was talking about steel and why I love it so much, you know, and this, this being informed by growing up and beautiful Land Rovers and tractors and stuff, everything's on show. Get misty eyed now, aren't you? Yeah, nuts <laughs> and bolts. I just really like that, that when you do look at a bike, you can see everything and you can kind of understand how it's gone together. And of course, it's welded tubes. Everyone can see, okay, well, the welded tubes together. But, you know, when you see a tube in a certain direction, you can, even if you don't know anything about it, you can, sort of an engineering, you can understand that, okay, well, if that's wide there, I'm guessing it's stiff there. Um, Funny, because a carbon frame is still handmade, like a steel frame, but yeah. like all the engineering on a carbon frame is hidden inside in it. So it's almost like a steel frame, a carbon frame turned inside out. So you can see all that, the quality of the welds. Exactly. So it's all on display. Yes, yeah, it's, it's right, all yeah. it's all on display. So, you know, there's you need um you can't hide any of the fabrication. It's all there to see. Um and yeah, we were you know, definitely my taste is for, you know, cables on the outside and everything fixable. A because you add in complexity if you if you're running cables through the frame. Um often it is unless it's for area benefits which don't really come into our world. Um, it's for um, the visual, which is fine. Aesthetic is a, is a thing, and that's cool. But you know, I just like this idea that you can easily fix things. If you see something wrong, you can pull it off, put it back on, see it, understand it, and get back on the road and ride your bike. It's this again, coming back to this idea of it being a tool, tools not trophies. That it's this thing that you go out and ride and makes you feel better and. But it's each to their own, you know. Um, certain people like the, the sort of seamless vibe, and that that's cool. And and others like the sort of more, I suppose, utilitarian. I'm surprised I haven't mentioned that word yet. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that's definitely what I like, um, and goes hand in hand with the material. Um, and this, you know, that everything's on show, the material itself, um, the practicality, and all the rest of it. Something else I want to ask you about is going back to the eighties when you know when steel was still a popular option. Yeah. The the sticker from the tube supply where Reynolds, uh, Columbus yeah. was as important as the brand name on a down tube, so eight five three. Yeah. Uh, for example, how important is that today with modern tubing developments? Is eight five three still important selling point or market quality for you? Or um. Is it a selling point? Definitely, it's a selling point. You know, the, the heritage, heritage has a value, and um, you know, people recognise that badge. Um, for me, it's important that we have the eight four three badge on the frame because of the relationship um, that we have with Reynolds. I've worked with them for a long time. You know, we talked about the the Bellare project at Genesis, um, and they're heavily involved in it. So you know, they're always. If I'm asked starting a for example, designing the Strail 3, there's a lot of toing and froing in terms of what can we do. And, you know, they want it to be a success as well because they see it as a sort of one of, not, not the only, but a flagship for their for their brand. And it's collaborative. You know, the ideas that I have, um, I'm informed by them as well in terms of what they can do with the material. Same with Mark Bentley, who does all the dropouts. They're a huge, important part of what we do, these, this collaboration um, and it is a collaborative product. You have this sort of almost this sole vision for the products and I'm bringing it together, but I'm reliant on them in terms of guiding what can be done in the real world. So 
you know how can we machine this object practically do we need a five axis mill or you know how how can we make it to a price and still make it look beautiful so mark will guide on that um and the guys at reynolds will guide on how we can make this tube um so yeah it's it's a it's a it's a badge of quality but also for us it's almost a badge of you know collaboration as well um that we can you know we have this amazing um fortune that we can work with a company a uk-based company who um have probably more butting and forming experience than than you know any other steel tube company in the world um going back i don't want to misquote Kiefer tell but 850 years whatever it is something crazy um yeah from when they were first first butting tubes so um yeah it's just an it's amazing thing to be able to tap into um and they're always willing to help so is it important yes and certainly it carries a value as well for the customer 853 is 853 the heritage of it you're talking about know, eddie Merckx. um i'm sure there's been hundreds of bikes that have toured the world in 853 as well so it's yeah it's it's a badge of quality but you know these things are hard earned so um it's earned the right to be um, more expensive more premium because of everything it's done yeah i've always been curious about the relationship between a, a frame builder design like yourself and the tubing supplier yeah i mean what comes first do they develop a tube set and go to a frame builders or do you say i want a tube does this and they try and develop it or is it a bit of both or no i mean it's it's we haven't um we've never sort of made a new material so we're, um you know the chemistry of the steel is we're not that far into it we don't that that's something um that would be a step too far if you like so you know quite quickly you'll be thinking well this is an 853 product or a 61 product or 725 or whatever um, or 953 um and once i know which material is the right material for that product it's then talking to Reynolds about the shaping about the butting um how do we actually make it um how do we form it and then some of the forming might not be done there might be done in the vendor so you know with the chain stairs the strail three which i know you talked about when you reviewed it you know the forming tools for for getting that beautiful flattening that's that's done in in the factory not at reynolds so um yeah but it's it's um yeah it'd be nice one day to be able to create you know um a new tube set signature tube set um and have our own Dom Thomas. have our own yeah <laughs> have our own signature tube chemistry don't think it'll ever happen <laughs> tube sets don't come along that often do they not like buses i mean eight five, no three. no they nine don't. five three was yeah it must be 10 years ago we're not having yeah. things since yeah um we'll get on to some future tech in a bit 3d yeah. printing and other stuff um there's one story i want you to tell the listeners and yeah. you told me when you dropped off the this trail about the, the development behind the chain stay I know this is super geeky, but mm. I'm sure people appreciate the detail, the lengths you went to to create something that is... Because the chainstay is on that bike, unlike any other chainstay I've seen on a steel bike before. Curvy and where carbon is. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the... Um, when we're doing the Strail 3, we the Strail 2 is already and still is an amazing... Um, it's a great product, even if I do say so myself. It's a great product, um, an amazing product. And... It was really difficult. We were already, you know, down to sort of 0.4 mil wall thicknesses. Um, you know, we'd, we'd done the best we could with the shaping, with the bile down tube, the flat oval, very skinny top tube. Um, and we was really struggling. Well, how, what's the plan of action for this trail free? How do I 
make it even better. Um, and it was sort of, there was the making a new forks, we opened new tools um, and we created our own mold of the forks. So we own that mold. You won't see any other bike apart from a Fairlight. Um, and we changed the button slightly on the down tube to make it stronger because it's now compatible with slightly bigger tires. Um, but the yeah, the main thing was the chain stage, you know, forming, shaping them so that we had, um, you know, vertical compliance, uh, lateral stiffness. You know, like you say, this almost, yeah, you know, a few people have compared it to sort of the old CADs, like this sort of the CAD chain stage, very, very flat, almost hydroformed looking stays. And we wanted, still wanted to use Reynolds. So we, um, yeah, it was something we couldn't, do in the UK um you know I was chatting to um the guys at Reynolds um Tom actually after when I was visiting them a short while ago to talk about a new project and they said that when they saw the lookbook they were even scratching their heads thinking right what process did they make that did they do this bend first that bend first and they were thinking about it in the methods that they would form tubes um but yeah the way we did it was effectively a a CNC'd um, mold if you like so the shaped as the tube looks and it's pressed hydraulically pressed into the shape so the dimples are, are all in there and everything's in these tools we pay a cost up front for the tooling um, and other brands do use the tooling but not typically for um, to do the style of shaping that we would have done um, and yeah so we paid a lot of money to open these forming tools and the tubes go in um before heat treatment, they're shaped, they're shaped, and then they go off for heat treatment because that forming, you know, um, puts um, can stress the product potentially to fatigue. So we have to increase strength afterwards. So it goes through heat treatment to add strength, and also the very thin 0.8.6 is a butted stay. Typically on you know um, mass production frames, you generally got plain gauge rear ends. We very lightweight butted rear ends in our frame. So yeah, it was a it was a it was costly. <laughs> But it was something that we just wanted to do, um, again, to improve the product, take it this step further. So, you know, the, the the weight isn't any different for that tube than the old version. And actually the tube size is the same. If you look at them side by side, as you can see in the lookbook, the design notes, the shape's just drastically different. Um, and when I first got the sample, I was back-to-back testing just on local roads, just over a day, just trying to feel the difference and I could feel it straight away just this sort of comfort it's different I always think find things that are difficult with words are very um words can make jump sound like a lot it was stiffer it was flexier sometimes like, and it, when you're riding it's just this very small perceptive thing you get a sense for it and usually that sense is right this feels a bit comfier and it is a bit comfier it might not be you know, it's not a huge amount different, but actually over the course of a ride, it, it will be, especially if an ultra endurance race or something, it all helps. Um, so again, it's just this idea of, you know, um, let's just keep evolving the product. And, you know, if you look at the work and the effort and the, the money that we put into just those small things, that actually um, the man on the street's just seeing an 853 badge, I think, well, that's it's madness, but we believe it's the right thing. And it's actually the reason why we do the design is because we've got this story to tell and even they you know, really touch the sides. There's quite a general way that we lay it out. You know, there's so much work that goes into trying to make um, this great product. Um, and yeah, so so that was a uh, uh, it was a, it was a good one because obviously the reviews came out from yourself and other publications, and everyone 
thought it rode great and it, and it does ride great so yeah in, in that instance it was it was worth it it's a lot of effort <laughs> to go to isn't it for some people might think it's a chain stay a chain stay yeah and i guess you had no idea it would offer better ride quality over the previous one until you rode it so by that point you put a lot of money down to develop yeah, the I tube mean, set and the maths doesn't lie so i okay. mean the um so you knew it could be a smooth ride i mean we hadn't cad engineered it but okay. the maths you knew if it's if it's flatter and wider it should be more comfortable and stiffer and we, we maintain the round section for a longer distance near the bottom bracket. Um, you know, you can just look at them and think, well, okay, this is gonna this is gonna be more resistant to pedaling forces than this one. And it should be comfier too. I can imagine how that's going to move. And um yeah, so it it was just a case of, you know, this is the right thing to do, let's do it and let's make sure we tell the story um of why we've done it. Um and yeah it'll be and it, and it was it was worth it it's, it's a great product and the the, <laughs> the struggle now is trying to think of a Sorel 4 which we're not onto yet but it will be difficult to improve on it i mean yeah i'm just amazed at the effort you've gone to because like you say you touched on it just now trying to describe how something rides compared to the old product is difficult to put into words because when you say it's yeah. better we're talking about you know, maybe small margins of improvement rather than big drastic yeah. leap forward and um there must be something inside you that drives you and motivates you to develop a chainsaw like that and you have a feature on the frame that yeah. really, you know, from the, you could have strolled to, very good bike, no happy days, but you've gone even further and above and beyond what, may, what might be expected of you. I mean, so yeah. what, what's driving you inside to push the limbs um, of steel and push the frame? I think you sort of, in some ways you create a rod for your own back because when we first launched, you know, we tried to make some great frames and, we, we did design notes and we had great reviews and that sort of sets a precedent of, of where you're at. And obviously there was a lot of obsessive um, time and effort that went into those products. And that's continuing. I suppose it's a mindset. You're always trying to improve. Again, going back to this idea that you appreciate people are spending money on your product. You want it to be the very best it can be. Um, and there's also this knowing that, um, like I say, there's a lot of brands... I certainly won't name any, but I think a lot of brands, even within steel, um, they have a single product manager looking after a large range of products. And there's so much they can do each year to these bikes and they have to meet price points um, and they simply haven't got the resource or the time um, to really focus in like like we can focus in. And, and that's really our model. You know, how do we get, how do we make it the best it can be for the, for this price? How do we really go at it? Um, and you know, all that experience, like I said, from making frames and doing frames in the past, it all feeds in, but ultimately it's about, you know, let's just make this great product that when people ride, they're going to be amazed by it. Um, and they're going to really, um, yeah, cause it's going to make them feel better. So it's sort of this, you don't ever want to get to this point where you just ex- expectation people are just going to buy stuff because they've heard your name. You always want to be trying to push and push and push and also it's kind of addictive this process of trying to think of little improvements you get into this thought path that you get a bit obsessed by it um and it's exciting that um you know always really clear um one of the, the sort of things in the design process is this moment where you have a picture in your head of the product roughly you know you, you, i've got it okay i can see it now and you get this really excited about it 
I've got the idea in my head. I can see the dropouts. I can see the tubes. I can see the shaping. Um, if we bring this out, we're going to do really well with it. And that excitement gets you through the whole project. And sometimes you'll lose the vision during the process because, you know, you can't do this or you can't do that. And maybe um, you, before you know it, it's changed slightly, but you have to look back and think that was the vision for it. That's what I was excited about. And if you're excited about it, the customer will be excited about it because, you know, ultimately I'm a consumer too. And you're sort of making bikes you want to ride yourself. Um, that if you saw, you'd think, wow, that's an amazing product. So if you can look at it like that, hopefully the, the customer's thinking that as well. Okay. Yeah. In terms of pushing the limits, that seems to be a theme so far. You're pushing the limits of steel. And it sounds like you're pretty close to the limits. Where do you see the next big innovation coming? I know Renault's particularly are working in 3D printing parts yeah and we're seeing some brands incorporating 3d into probably less so with steel but other materials yeah do you see any scope down that 3d printing avenue for you as a brand um, by designer and engineer to i'm not sure i'm mean, actually just when i i don't <laughs> come across in the way in the wrong way when i say sort of pushing the limits we are pushing the limits in a good way in a good in a good yeah, way an exciting it, way but there are um like so with 3d printing with other things where um they are pushing the limits in terms of the um, absolute technology, but obviously they'll be very, very expensive and they might only sell one of them or five of them. We're trying to push the limits within, um, at the same time, make a product we can mass produce and get people on the bikes. Um, so that, but that is also a fun part of it that you're trying to make this product that is accessible um, and that they set the limits. And, you know, as technologies come through, they, they, become cheaper i suppose or at the moment 3d printing is very expensive um i think 3d printing is interesting as a as a um, as a technology and obviously we're seeing it being used a lot in the custom world um tom sturdy doing incredible work with titanium and tie bars tie forks and you know beautiful stuff um and i saw quirk at bespoke to done a, a 3d printed steel hardtail again really lovely um yeah, but these products are incredibly expensive and that's fine because that's the world they exist in. It's the custom world. People are going to pay for it. And for me, because of everything I've said about, you know, my tastes and sort of this idea of utility, um, at the moment it doesn't sort of marry up with the sort of products I want to make because it is very cost, um, it's very expensive. And, you know... Uh, I think there's a good story behind 3D printing in terms of the simplicity of it. In the customer's eyes, they think, oh, okay, I get that. The builder can just cut the tube and then this lugs do all the work and it's easy to understand. But actually, you know, lugs were around for a long time and lugs sort of did the same thing. And actually with what we do with TIG welding tube, that's still very simple. You know, they have machines to cut the tubes, um, to mite the tubes correctly. And then they have, you know, amazing welders to join them. You're still only joining the tubes I suppose with 3D printing, you're getting this seamless look that is more akin to perhaps what we'd expect from carbon. Um, it's almost the look of this sort of molded object rather than a welded object. Um, and that's an interesting aesthetic. Um, I don't may particularly think you're getting anything in terms of um, the um, ride quality of, of the product. Um, Although saying that you could maybe do things around the BB in terms of forming that area. Um, again, so what am I saying? I'm saying it's an interesting technology. I'm saying at the moment it's, it's, it's 
too expensive for us to consider for, for anything other than maybe a small part that would help us in a particular area of the bike. Um, but yeah, we, I don't think anytime soon we'll be bringing out a 3D printed bike. Um, it, it would be an interesting concept um, as a product. You know, it talks about maybe how would you, you know, the idea of like honeycomb lattice structures and um, with no cover to try and really reduce the weight. And Reynolds did an interesting product a few years ago at a show where it was a titanium frame and they'd have these lattice um, BB area, the seat tube, the head tube, and it was incredibly light. Um, you'd look at it going actually, I can see impractical issues with that, you know, mud getting onto it, and obviously it'd be very, very expensive. Um, but it's interesting as a as a idea, and ideas are, re- are really important. Um, so we'll keep our eyes on it. Um, I think at the moment it doesn't really um, appeal in terms of the ch- types of products we're trying to make. Um, it's just too expensive, but never say never as te- as the technology develops there may be ways that it becomes more accessible um where we feel it's worth making a bike from it um so yeah so it's about utilizing that new technology where you see it offers a benefit to you the brand in terms of pricing and no an actual functional benefit not just for the sake of it looking nicer and prettier exactly i mean offer. i think there's an element of it where you know it, it's aesthetically beautiful i can certainly see for um, custom builders, you know, like Tom Sturdy, like um, Rob Quirk, where um, they're able to offer this point of difference and engineer different areas of the bike specifically for the customer um, for these single frames. And I think that's great. And they'll do good business from that. And they deserve good business from that because, you know, they're exploring these areas. Um, for us, you know, trying to mass produce bikes, um, trying to make them accessible, it's still on the fringes too much um it's still too expensive but like i said we'll keep our eyes on it and there may be small areas where we can utilize it in the design um or there may not be um but it certainly wouldn't be for aesthetic reasons i don't think it would more be if it was the best method for that particular job uh, in terms of weight or in terms of um the type of shape of the object obviously you're limited by cnc for certain objects you can't really make it hollow um unless it's a tube and you you sort of drilling it out so um yeah and obviously we use 3d printed plastic parts for cable guides um where in that for that particular application is actually the the best material and the best um technology for that part because we can we can make it at a certain cost and the 3d printed um material is has a little bit of malleability to it so it fits into the hole and it expands a little bit whereas metal would be too rigid or um, a bit rattly. So um, as per the, the 3D printing of the plastic parts and the dynamo mounts, we do the same. Um, there may be an opportunity in the future where as price comes down, we start considering the metal parts, steel, tie, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something to keep an eye on. Okay. <laughs> Given we went back 10 years a little while ago to your Genesis days in 2012, yeah. Can you get your crystal ball out and see where you and the brand will be in 10 years' time? Or oh, where steel? Do you think cause steel <laughs> seems to be a really popular... It's always been a popular material. It seems to be more popular now. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a backlash in carbon or the environmental stance or there's more knowledge. Or do you find yourself still have to justify steel in a world of carbon and um, bikes? Or? I mean, there's... I'd say for our existing customer base, we don't have to justify it. We're, we're still relatively small. 
um, although we are growing. Um, but there'll always be the sort of the customer who maybe is newer into it or just ignorant because their associates deal with weight and all, you know, how has steel still got a place in, in modern cycling? And obviously it has for all the reasons I said. And, and um, you know, certainly when I look at us in the future, we'll continue to make these um, great bikes like the Strail, like the Sakan at the higher end. But we're also looking to um, move into products that are even more accessible, um, tools for getting around town, um and i won't touch on what because we're, we're really in the early stages but it's something we're looking at um in terms of yeah making the product more accessible where steel is still so relevant because of the recyclability and reliability and um you know the cost of making it um comfort and all the rest of it so you know it's still very much in our plans going forward um, and it's still, as I can tell, it's, it's, it's incredibly relevant uh, as a material and will be for a long time. Um, so, yeah, there's always going to be people that want to buy a, you know, a frame to do all types of riding on that's going to last them for 50 years. Um, although they probably won't ride it for 50 years, but the, the intention of it doing so um, and to do lots of different types of riding on and steel will always be great for that type of customer um so yeah and we're looking at you know other areas as well so where we'll be in 10 years hopefully still making great products hopefully still enjoying it um growing making more bikes getting more people on our bikes contributing to society um and um yeah, but there's certainly a lot to get through. It's challenging enough now just with lead times we were talking about before. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, you know, how far ahead we're having to order just to sort of keep up with with um, the demand that COVID has created across the industry, um, having to get a little bit of the pie and get in with the factories, booking years ahead just so we can keep going with it. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's exciting. You know, maybe in 10 years, you will have a 3D printed bike. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, and we may look at the materials. You know, like I said, I've, I've done aluminium bikes in the past. I don't think we'll do them at Fairlab, but never say never. Um, tie. Um, tie seems a natural fit for a brand like yourself because it's similar to steel. Yeah, I mean... A bit lighter. Exactly, yeah. It's a, it's, a similar, it's a similar material um and i think it has a similar customer base customer base so that is perhaps um something we'll look at doing um so yeah it's and you know i i'd love to do or we'd love to do um I speak for john as well um you know things like cargo bikes and things like that these sort of everyday bikes that very hip very hip right yeah now. but again it's um <laughs> just you know I'm so cool. I'm, I'm joking. Though, yeah, no, no, no. But I, it's. I, I, uh, I keep saying with this idea that you know the bikes that people ride day to day that actually probably is the bike in your stable that you get the most use out of. That and for a lot of people you might have a fleet of beautiful bikes, but it might be the steel single speed that you ride every day that's yeah. the one you really love riding, or the Sican or whatever yeah. that you go out on the farm tracks. The that, pub bike. The pub bike, yeah, but you know those bikes are a sort of value that yeah. you kind of get attached to them, um, and that arguably the one that sort of has the biggest effect on people's lives because um, they're using it to get around. They're not getting in a car or whatever. They, they're getting around this bike. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, 
utility, practicality, obviously important words to me and to the brand. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of areas where we're excited to go into in the future. Um, certainly people shouldn't expect one to be in the market tomorrow or a year or even two years because we're still, you know, exploring ideas, um, but also just trying to keep up with the day to day. But um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited by it. We're, we're excited by it and um, where we can go with the brand. And, you know, we feel we've really focused on the right things. We've, we've built strong foundations. We've, we've focused on quality. We try and um, give good customer service. We, we try and always do the right thing. Um, and um, that's the mindset we'll continue with and we'll just see where it takes us. Okay. Well, I think we covered a lot. I think there's more we could cover. <laughs> and we not really talked about how it rise and springy, bright quality. Springy. But we, we'll say that for another episode. I think that's a good place to leave it there. So um, cool. thanks so much for uh, no problem. Thanks joining me on the podcast. Over. Hopefully you all enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Well, nice one. See you again soon. Cheers, Dave. Thank you. Should we go to the pub? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs>